This week's TribCast is sponsored by the Texas State University System. Lamar University ranks third nationally and first in Texas for engineering graduate net earnings, outperforming Stanford, Rice, and MIT. Visit tsus.edu for more. And the Education Trust in Texas advocates for high-quality education for Black and Latino students and students from low-income backgrounds who have gone underserved for far too long. Learn more at edtrust.org slash Texas. Hello and welcome to this week's TribCast. My name is James Barragan. I'm a politics reporter and I'm filling in for our fearless leader, Matthew Watkins, who is off today, spending some time with his family. Joining us today for our discussion is going to be Patrick Svitek, our politics reporter. Hey there. And Jolie McCullough, our criminal justice reporter. Hello. And we are going to be chatting about book investigations, uh, uh, potential foreign, do we have a potential foreign Fahrenheit 451 situation here going on in the state of Texas? And then also uh, politics. Um, the candidate filing period is coming up, and we've got some announcements already out, some in the works, and some that we are still expecting. So Patrick is going to be filling us in on where we are and what we're still expecting. Um, but I guess if you all want to just, if we just want to start off, Jolie, with um, these book investigations that we're talking about um, this week, uh, Governor Greg Abbott called for criminal investigations into the availability of what he called, uh, and we quote, pornographic books in public schools, um, which is kind of a, a, a sort of shocking uh, thing to hear um, about pornographic books in our schools. Um, and so, Jolie, if you can sort of just give us a brief rundown of what is the deal here? Um, what what are we considering pornographic books? And I think the interesting part of this is is – why you're involved in this, right? As our criminal justice reporter, what is the criminal aspect of this that needs to be investigated? Sure. Um, so uh, this is kind of the latest step, right? In Abbott and um, other conservative politicians taking a stand against um, some books that are in or presumed to be in um, public school libraries. Uh, what is hap- What the latest step was this week was that the governor asked. Um, the Texas Education Agency to criminally investigate um, any, you know, potential, the the statute is being like exposing minors to pornography or harmful material. Um, And so this is kind of, he even earlier this week had asked for them to look into it. And now he's taking this step further and saying, we need to look into potential prosecution. Um, The the thing about this is that the Texas Education Agency doesn't actually have any criminal investigators. Like, they don't have any law enforcement officers or any peace officers on staff. Um, usually when there's an agency that he, that the governor would want a criminal investigation into, he would send, you know, the state's law enforcement branch. He would send Texas Department of Public Safety. Um there are some, you know, there's some statute in education law of like the commissioner being able to investigate education law and state law. But in, in terms of criminal investigations, it's kind of 
unclear what TEA would be able to do. Um, so obviously this is starting with this investigation into, it started with uh, State Representative Matt Krause uh, coming up with a list of about 850 books um, that were, you know, often related to race, they were related to LGBTQ issues that they were being deemed, you know, that they wanted to kind of get a look at what public schools were doing and who had what. Um, and that's kind of been the beginning of what where this is all headed. Um, so now there's been a couple books that have been targeted out and some, um, one portraying, you know, some sexual uh, relationships, sexual um, issues between with LGBTQ teens um, who are kind of coming into their identity. Um, and that's been controversial with parents in some districts who are trying to get these books that may have um, sexual content in them. And, you know, the question now is if we're going to prosecute that, A, who investigates? Um, if it's TEA, they don't have criminal investigators. So what are they investigating? B, who is prosecuted? Is it the librarian? Is it the principal? Is it the school boards? And C, um, how do you prosecute that? Because in the statute that Abbott specifically referred to, um, there is an affirmative defense, which means a, a standing defense against prosecution is if the material was presented for educational reasons. Um, so that's really where I think the, the challenge is going to come to. And it gets to this question of like, is this something that will actually move forward in terms of prosecution, or is this just, you know, posturing? And Jolie, it sounds like, um, and, and, and you and I have covered the border and immigration enforcement that the governor has sort of laid out this earlier this year, um, where similarly he has sort of created a, 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 a entered a new territory in, in terms of like how we are prosecuting people. It sounds like here, it's not clear really who's going to be doing the investigating or, um, you know, if it would be a, a local police agency, uh, a county sheriff, DPS, who would it be? So I, I don't know if you can if you can talk a little bit more about that. It, it is sort of confusing. And I wonder if that parallel is a is a good one. We're, we're just it does seem like we're just kind of making this up as we go. Like, I'm not even really clear, like, what is the statute that we're looking at? And has it been prosecuted this way before? I mean, in terms of in schools, I don't I don't know if this is something that's come up. I mean, there is something I know in 2019, there were a group of conservative lawmakers who tried to get rid of that affirmative defense in terms of if it's for educational purposes, they tried to get rid of that defense. So seemingly this is something that's kind of been on the radar, at least somewhat um, in, in conservative circles. Um, but yeah, I think this is, this is part of that, right? Like it's a situation where it's very reactive. Um, and you, the details are kind of worked out as, as things are said. So, you know, at first he was asking the Texas Association of School Boards to look into this. Um, they kind of, you know, dismissed his request saying, we don't really have any control over what is in, like what books or whatever, what books are in the library. So then he's asked since the Texas Education Agency to look into it, to like investigate where these books are and to get them out of the libraries. And then a couple of days later, he said, and that's not enough either. We also need to prosecute these. Um, and he tasked the TEA with criminally investigating. Um, and it, 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 especially given that TEA has no criminal investigators, it does kind of raise questions of 
what is the end goal here? Is the end goal here actually to have some prosecutions? Because sure, anyone can go to a prosecutor and say, hey, I saw this, like really, you know, this there's evidence of a crime and I think you should prosecute that. But almost always that prosecutor is then going to get a law enforcement agency to look into it. So, I mean, is TEA just going to bring things to law enforcement agencies, in which case, like, it would be confusing why DPS wouldn't be the front runner here. Um, so it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's unclear. And as you said, the same thing we saw on the border, it's setting up an issue, start it, and then figure out how it actually is going to work later down the line. And I think it also draws parallel to, to, to the way the new um, abortion law here in Texas has been, has been playing out, basically, that the fear of of somebody um reporting you is has has basically been what we're all talking about just the fear is enough to stop this from happening um which i think is another interesting parallel i did want to zone in on or zero in here on the books um that are um on abbott's directive um from earlier in the week which one of them is gender queer a memoir by maya kababi i hope i'm saying that correctly um, and that one, I think you, that was the one you were talking about where it's about the author's journey with gender identity and at some points it has illustrations of oral sex and other sexual content along with discussions about like pronouns, acceptance, and, and hormone blocking drugs. And then the other one is In, In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. Um, and this is sort of where I wanted to ask you a little bit about like because you also spoke to the um, governmental relations director from the Texas District and County Attorneys Association, and and there are challenges in terms of like you know there if it's in an educational if it's in an educational format, then how do you even prosecute this right? And I think for me, it also raises like freedom of speech issues because if we're just talking about like things that some um, you know, people uh, with more conservative views find objectionable, we're going to run into a lot of problems. Like the Scarlet Letter, which is a classic um, that's taught in high school classes, talks about adultery, talks about uh, uh, having children out of wedlock, which is which is um, seen as inappropriate for some people. Um, in Catcher in the Rye, there's, um, there's implications about, you know, a, a teacher having... Um, some type of sexual relation with Holden there or having a, a sexual interest in Holden Caulfield. Um, and so, I don't know, are those things that are of concern when we're talking about this? Because the other thing is also, like Carmen Maria Machado, if, if there's any, but any literary nerds on the, on the trip cast, and I think that, I think that Venn diagram is, is pretty large, actually. <laughs> um, but she's like a, she's a, she's a well-renowned artist, uh, author, I'm sorry, um, she's she's been a finalist for the National Book Award. The way she writes in that particular book, um, in the Dream House, does I think you can make an argument serves for educational purpose because basically that book is about her. Um, it's it's sort of a memoir about her, an abusive relationship that she had, and and Carmen Maria Machado is is a queer woman, but it's a story about uh, an abusive relationship she had with with a woman, and in every chapter, it it tackles, it tells the story, but in a different genre, sort of. And so there is like educational purposes where you can say, well, let's look at the writing. And there's no question that she is a very talented writer. So I don't know if, if you've had any of those conversations with the people um, that you were talking to for this story about, I mean, there is educational purpose in some of these, right? 
Yeah, and I think that's the main thing that the, you know, the, for the man from the Prosecuting Attorneys Association, um, that's going to be the big problem, I think, is that there is this affirmative defense written into the statute that Abbott has cited as the one that is being violated, that there is this defense specifically citing educational purposes. So it's, I mean, not to say it couldn't be overcome, that defense, but that would be definitely the biggest one to be raised if this were to move forward you know, in criminal prosecution. Um, and I also think it, it also raises that question is if, is that really the, the point here? Or as you said, is it the fear? You know, if we threaten that this is going to happen, is that enough to keep it from happening or to make these schools take these books out of their libraries? Um, which I'm sure in at least several cases are, uh, will be the case. Um, I think the the thing you get to with the free speech is also another thing to get there, right? But, I mean, obscenity has always been very vague and very, you know, the whole, the famous quote, I know it when I see it, but there's really no way to pinpoint what that is. So, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of legal, I mean, murkiness for a better, for lack of a better word, but um, I mean, the point that was trying to be made here was very clear. And I think that's the main takeaway. I think you guys pointed out in your story um, that some, uh, or it does seem like there's a particular focus on LGBT or books related to the LGBTQ community, um, which, which, which I think shouldn't be ignored in that. I think that should be pointed out that it's a particular type of thing that um, the governor and and state representative Matt Krause um, find offensive, which doesn't align with their conservative values. One other thing that I'd point out about the Carmen Maria Machado uh, book is that, as I said earlier, it is about an abusive relationship. Um, and she has made a point in talking about that book and talking about how there's an erasure or a silencing of abuse in queer uh, relationships like that. And... Um, I just think it's it's very interesting because she wrote that book specifically to highlight that point. And now because some people find it offensive, it is being targeted uh, because of specifically it being about a same-sex couple. Um, so I think that's just a noteworthy point. Um, final thing on this issue, um, Jolie, that I want to ask you about is, you know, you, you referenced Representative Cross's investigation into 800 some odd books. Um, as well, if, if that's right. And if it's not, please yeah. correct me. Um, and, and now the governor really, really getting in on this. But do we have any idea like where where this issue originated or where like who's who's calling for this? Stuff? Well, and that's the thing that, um, yeah, Representative Krauss has not given any answers that's been asked. And he's he's declined to say what prompted his investigation Um you know, citing that it could it could uh, interfere with his investigation. Um, it seems like, at least from what Abbott has mentioned, he has noted that two two schools uh, two school districts had removed these books. So in the in the case of um, of in the gender queer book, there was it would had been removed by a school district as well as the one that you mentioned had been removed from classrooms in you know Leander. So. I think, you know, it might have been situations where they heard of these in individual districts removing them based off of, you know, parent parent upset about this, you know, these books being in their schools and that kind of um, snowballed from there. But I, you know, Matt Krause has been has been reluctant to say. 
but there's not been a public um, outcry from from say like a, a, a large conservative group or anything. It seems like it's a at least the stated purpose is from a grassroots perspective of people who find these things objectionable. And that is what seems to be yeah being said at the point at this point. Okay, and and I think that that is a good sort of transition into our our next segment, which is like that a lot of these issues are coming up in a political cycle and they are certainly wedge issues. You know, they, they certainly get the base riled up. They certainly get people riled up and we'll be talking more about um, how that's going to play into the political atmosphere uh, next year with Patrick after a short break and a message from our sponsors. Texas Bankers Association. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Texas community banks have led the way in providing PPP loans to help small businesses survive. Find out more at texasbankers.com. And Texas Farm Bureau offers a liability sign that meets the language requirements under the Farm Animal Liability Act. Get your sign today at txfb.us. Okay, and we're back. And Patrick Svitek, our political machine political expert who knows everything about politics um, will be giving us a rundown of sort of what the 2022 election cycle is looking like. Uh, Patrick, I guess first I wanted to talk about um, legislative departures. Um, Today, uh, Friday, we saw John Sirier um, is leaving, um, not seeking re-election for the Texas House. He's a Republican from Lockhart um, who's been there four terms. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you about, you know, just political departures from the state house. There's, there's, they're really piling up, aren't they? And, and what that means for, uh, next year's political cycle and also just for policy and lawmaking next time we come back. Yeah. I mean, the Texas house in particular is, is seeing a lot of retirement announcements or announcements that someone's going to run for another office. Um, or there are some cases, a couple cases where someone is running for a different district because of redistricting. Um, you know, I think every 10 years, the redistricting process, um, really forces some members to think about, um, whether they want to serve another term, either because the geography of their district changes, the potential for a competitive race increases. Um, I think it's typically just traditionally, a time where members do some some real hard reflection on whether they want to continue serving. Um, I wasn't around last redistricting cycle in Texas, um, but you know, from people who were, it sounds like there were um, just as many retirements, or if not more. Um, you know, right now with the news of Syria's um, retirement, I tallied it up this morning, um, and we have 19 members of the House who are. Uh, either not seeking re-election to their current district or not seeking re-election at all. Uh, Kind of how you tally that can depend because there are some unique cases here. Um, So, you know, you could say around 20 members um, who are not running again in their current in their current seats. And so um, that's a significant amount. Um, And, you know, as we've discussed with redistricting, there aren't going to be that many competitive state house districts if these maps hold. Um, But for Republicans and for Democrats, there are going to be opportunities to replace um, a member of their party with potentially a more conservative member of their party, a more moderate member of their party. And so even though I don't think the partisan balance in the House is going to change that dramatically the next time they meet in 2023, um, you could have some, some very different kinds of Republicans and very different kinds of Democrats replacing members of their own, their own party um, in some of these seats. Uh, so that's, I think, going to be the, the big impact here. 
and you alluded to this. I mean, in some ways, this is just sort of natural. Uh, people who've been in office for a while are looking to move up, right? And I think we mentioned uh, uh, Representative Matt Krause of Fort Worth. He's in the AG race now. But who are some of these others um, who are looking to to take a step up, whether that be from from the House or the Senate and looking to go statewide? Yeah, you have Matt Krauss, as you pointed out, running for attorney general. Um, I don't think there are any other state lawmakers that are running for statewide office. Oh, I guess Don Buckingham, the state senator, is running yeah. for land commissioner. And James um, White, I think, is running for James White. Is, <laughs> maybe, I've totally blanked on some of these names. But yeah, Don Buckingham, the state senator, is running for land commissioner in the Republican primary. James White, a Republican state rep, is running in the Republican primary for ag commissioner. Um, so, yeah, you do have a few um, state lawmakers who are running for higher statewide office. You have some like state rep Eddie Rodriguez, a Democrat from Austin, who is running for Congress instead of running for reelection. You have some who are looking at even local office. Uh, Sally Israel, a state rep, a Democrat from Austin, who is preparing to run for Austin mayor. Um, and then, as I pointed out earlier, you have some members of the House who are not who are running for different districts because of circumstances created by redistricting. A good example of that is James Tallarico, uh, kind of a rising star Democrat from suburban Austin, um, whose district was redrawn to be more competitive for Republicans. And so he decided to instead run for reelection in Celia Israel's district, which is more inside Austin proper, uh, more solidly Democratic. And that's an open seat with her exploring a run for mayors. So um, those are just some of the kind of unique circumstances I think that are created uh, by redistricting. Um, you know, and I think as this filing period opens, you're going to see more jockeying. I mean, we have some seats that literally just became open in the recent days that I'm sure are going to draw more candidates. You have Syria's seat, for example, where he already was facing two primary challengers. I'm sure you'll see many more candidates now in that seat. Um, you have State Senator Eddie Lucio's seat, um, which there is no doubt is going to draw a huge crowded field. He just announced, I think, like a week ago that he's retiring. He held that seat uh, or at least served in the Senate um, for, for three decades. So there's no doubt that there's been a, a, a you know, kind of a traffic jam of ambitious Democrats and Republicans waiting for their shot at that state Senate seat. Um, and that's definitely going to be one that I think is going to draw a crowd during this filing period. So um, I think we have a number of unanswered questions still about some of these big races as we enter the filing period. Well, another unanswered question is uh, what what Louis Gohmert will be running for, right? There was an intriguing uh, press conference this week, and and his ultimate announcement after some technical difficulties was that I think he's taking ten days to see if he can raise one million dollars um, with with a little bit of math problems, as as you pointed out in your story. Um, but it, that's sort of his test run to see if that if he if he's actually going to run into the AG race, an AG race on the Republican side and even on the Democratic side that's already pretty crowded. And so, can you talk a little bit about maybe why so many people are interested in that position, and also what would happen if if Gomer jumps in? I mean, who who gets the biggest benefit? Yeah, I think um, I'm very skeptical that Gomer is going to uh, you know actually run for this seat because I'm I'm skeptical. Um, that he's going to be able to raise a million dollars in 10 days. Uh, something like that seems very difficult to do for someone with his fundraising track record unless he has a couple mega donors who've already committed massive amounts of money to help him get toward that $1 million. Um, There are very few people in Texas politics 
um, who without the aid of, uh, you know, mega donors, people cutting six figure checks who can raise a million dollars in 10 days. And Louis Gomer, um, no disrespect to him is not one of them. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I'm skeptical that that's ultimately going to work out if the benchmark is raising $1 million in 10 days. And again, if he doesn't have any, you know, particularly uh, rich benefactor helping him on this. Um, but I think that, you know, his interest in the race, uh, shows, you know, just, how vulnerable Ken Paxton may be in this primary and maybe not even how vulnerable, but just how we've gotten to the point where, you know, some of the most prominent elected officials in Texas, whether it's members of Congress, other statewide officials are to the point where they're just fine and openly speaking about um, how flawed a member of their party is in statewide office, which is totally where we weren't at in 2018, um, where speaking of the filing period, I remember sitting at the Texas Republican Party headquarters office at the end of the filing period in, in 2017, waiting to see if there would be a primary challenger who would emerge against Ken Paxton and would file at the last minute. And he ended up getting zero primary challengers in 2018. Now, he's obviously gotten into more legal trouble since then, but he certainly had baggage uh, back then. And I think the crowd that he's, you know, he's drawn in this primary so far um, just shows how vulnerable people are um, and f- how comfortable they feel to speak out about his problems. I think the one thing with Louis Gohmert that's interesting to consider is just, you know, he's never been known as a particularly kind of polished messenger or communicator. He says what's at the top of his head. And so the one I think the one thing I think Paxton would have to worry about if he got into this race is, you know, Louis Gohmert's going to be out there if he's a attorney general candidate. He's going to be out there, you know, every day on conservative media, you know, speaking very candidly and very, you know, vociferously about how, you know, how flawed and vulnerable Ken Paxton is, um, you know, and we've already seen these primary challengers be very critical of Paxton. But I think that Louis Goldberg as a challenger um, would be, you know, even more vocal, uh, even more unpredictable. Um, you know, we already saw in some of his initial interviews after announcing he's exploring this campaign um, just how kind of uh, – you know, much of uh, kind of a unpredictable loose cannon he could be in terms of the allegations he throws around, the gossip that he peddles. Um, and so if I were Paxton, I'd be a little worried in that regard, I think, having a, a Louis Gohmert in the race who's not necessarily, um, you know, someone who's going to color inside the lines. Do we think, like... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Julie. I was just going to ask, like, do we think, like, part of the strategy here is just to force a runoff? Because there's so many people running for AG now. I mean, even though like our latest polls show that Paxton is still way ahead of the, of the rest. Like if, if there's so many people pulling even a little bit, like to force him into a runoff, is he going to be a lot more vulnerable there? Yeah. I think the strategy is, yeah, is definitely get him to a runoff. Um, you know, which I think with this many candidates at this point, even before you set aside Louis Gomer, um, you know, is likely at this point, um, get him to a runoff and you should, you know, there's going to be money spent against him. I mean, this is right now his polling reflects where he's at before a single advertising dollar has been spent against him in a Republican primary. Um, so that's going to drag him down. Uh, but for these challengers, the problem for them is that most of them, Kraus, Guzman and, and Gomer, at least, um, Gomer as a potential challenger are really not well known statewide. And so, um, you know, st- strategy dictates in these races, you got to build yourself up and make voters like you before, you, you know, you make them dislike the other person. And so some of these folks, I think, um, have to do make much better strides, getting better known statewide before they can meaningfully attack Paxton, at least in a, in a, in a paid media sense. It, it does seem that Jolie's point is is a good one, and I think I think I'm uh, I think 
it's what we're seeing in that perhaps there's a tacit or or not so tacit uh, uh, push by really the the Republican Party in general to say, hey, maybe Paxton is not our guy. Uh, Because, you know, when you listen to George P. Bush, when you listen to Eva Guzman, uh, when you listen to Krauss or Gomer, like they're all hitting him on the same thing, his legal troubles. And so uh, it does seem, Patrick, that that there is sort of a concerted effort to say, hey, if we really want to if we really want to keep this seat, maybe he's not our best messenger. Yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, you know, even Louis Gomer, um, who's never necessarily been like someone who's ever had to run a competitive general election and never, you know, has always basically lived inside the Republican primary ecosystem. Even he's talking about like, we can't let this, you know, we can't let this seat flip to the Democrats uh, in November. I mean, they're all using that line and, you know, saying that Paxton is so badly damaged that there could be a situation um, where the Democrats win this this statewide race and have a historic breakthrough in Texas politics if Paxton is the nominee in, in, in November. And so, yeah, they're all definitely talking about the legal problems and what that means for Paxton's electability uh, in November of next year. And, and even if Gomer doesn't run, I mean, the things he's already said from that press conference, you know, you can't you can't put that genie back in the bottle. It's already out there. The attacks are the attacks are there. And um, yeah, like so. I said, I mean, he's again, all these challengers have been critical of Paxton. But Gomer, you know, just looking at his press conference the other day, I mean, you know, he was throwing out all this uh, unverified information about, you know, uh, the, you know, the number of FBI agents who are investigating Paxton. He threw out a number, for example. And so if I were Paxton, again, like. I personally don't think Louis Gomer is ultimately going to be in this race. We'll, we'll check in next Tripcast. Um, but if I were Paxton, I'd be a little worried because this guy is like, he's going to be critical like everyone else of Paxton in a primary, but he could be a loose cannon too. I mean, he's going to be tossing out all kinds of unverified information, um, really kicking up dirt and being somewhat undisciplined um, in a way that other primary challengers won't be. Well, as the person covering uh, Attorney General Paxton's illegal troubles, I'll say, Louis Gomert, if you've got some inside information, uh, find find my email, find my contact information on the Texas Tribune. Give me a call. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> and the final thing I'll say about Louis Gomert is that he also, if he jumps into the race, there's also a domino effect there. I think there, there have been talk about uh, Senator, State Senator Brian Hughes um, and potentially State Rep Matt Schaefer jumping in. I think Brian Hughes has now said he's going to be refiling for um, for or filing for re-election. Uh, Matt Schaefer, I think, is still thinking it over. Um, but let's go over to the Democratic side, Patrick, because we've been. I think I think this is what the 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 listeners have been thinking about the whole time we've been talking about politics, which is when is Beto jumping into the governor's race? Is it going to happen? And if not, like who else? Uh, who else should we be looking for on the Democratic side? The Republican side seems like it's pretty it, in a good shape, in the shape that it's going to look like at the end of this thing. Um, but, but if it's not, you, you, you know, you tell us, you know more about this stuff. Yeah, as you alluded to, I think the question with whether Beto work is going to run for get- governor is not a question of if, it's a question of when. Um, and with the filing period, uh, you know, starting on Saturday, uh, you would expect someone like him to make his intentions known pretty early in the filing period, because if he's going to if he's going to surprise Democrats and say, I'm not running for governor, um, he would and, and he wanted to be courteous about it. He would do it relatively early in the filing period. So they can get another <laughs> filing period so they can get another candidate. So um, I, I think, uh, you know, not that we have any confirmed information, but I, I think just logic would dictate that. 
you know, in the filing period, which begins on uh, Saturday. So, you know, again, I think all eyes are on that announcement. People expect him to run. Democrats expect him to run. Republicans expect him to run. It's really just a question, uh, as I pointed out, of the timing and kind of the, the messaging, too. I think a lot of folks are, are looking to see how is this race going to be run differently um, from his 2018 Senate race, um, you know, and the, the context just factually is is totally different than the 2018 Senate race, you know. He got into that race very early. He got into that race over a year and a half before Election Day. In this case, he'd be getting in less than a year before Election Day, well under a year before Election Day. In that race, he started as a political unknown to, to Texans. I mean, there were you know strong majorities of voters saying they didn't know about him. They had no opinion of him. We're now at a point in Texas politics where Basically, everyone has an opinion about Joe Rourke. Um, you know, I think our latest poll showed that only 7% of, of voters in the poll said they don't know him enough to have an opinion with him. And so he and, and that opinion in most of the polling that I've seen is upside down. I think in our poll, 35% of voters had a favorable opinion, 50% had an unfavorable opinion. Um, so that's something he's going to have to grapple with. And also, it's a totally different dynamic with the incumbent. Ted Cruz when Beto O'Rourke ran against him in 2018, made the decision to ignore Beto O'Rourke for 11 months, um, not attacking him in any way, not barely even acknowledging his existence, strategically because Beto O'Rourke was so unknown. Um, but we now have an incumbent in Greg Abbott who is not going to, you know, stand is, you know, be on the sidelines as Beto O'Rourke runs. He's already signaled he's going to run a very uh, aggressive anti-O'Rourke campaign, and so. The context, the dynamics of this race would just be totally different. And I think a lot of people are interested to see how Beto work is going to adjust for all that. And the, the other thing is, you know, as, as I said earlier, it looks like the Republican field is, is shaping up with the, with the surprise, I think, question of whether Gomer gets into the AG race or not. But on the Democratic side, there's certainly, um, you know, absent even Beto, like assuming he does get in. Uh, beyond that, there does seem to be an absence of, of big name candidates. I guess Matthew Dowd and Mike Collier are the other major ones running for lieutenant governor. Um, but that's that's got to be an issue that they're thinking about, right? And I, I assume we we'll, we sh- we we'll, we expect to see a couple of at least bigger names. But is is that a challenge for Democrats? Yeah, I mean, there's always you know a sign of a competent state party anywhere is being able to fill out. A statewide ticket. And that, you know, sometimes that for Texas Democrats, that takes a little longer. You, you look at the statewide ticket right now, assuming O'Rourke runs for governor, they have a candidate there. You pointed out they have two credible, serious candidates for lieutenant governor. There's at least three credible Democrats running for attorney general. Um, for them, the question is how they fill out some of those statewide offices even farther down the ballot. I'm not aware of any Democratic candidate for comptroller right now, for example. Um, there are a couple Democratic candidates for land commissioner um, who I'm not too familiar with and don't have, I don't think, the, the most political history. And so, yeah, Democrats are going to have to fill out this statewide ticket. Um, you know, I think they are, are in a good, a decent place right now. Um, as I said, I don't know anyone running for comptroller and, you know, going into a filing period, I think it would be ideal to know who'd be running for comptroller on the Democratic side. Um, so, yeah, I think the question is, is how they're going to fill out that Democratic statewide ticket. I don't think they're going to have to worry about governor, lieutenant governor and, and attorney general. I think it's some of those lesser, uh, lower profile offices that they may have to, um, they may be kind of um, behind the eight ball on right now. 
Well, we'll have to wait and see uh, who who these names are going to be in the next couple of days and weeks. Um, I think that's going to wrap up our show for this week. Patrick, Jolie, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our sponsors, the Texas Bankers Association, uh, the Texas Farm Bureau, the Texas State University System, and the Education Trust in Texas. Thank you and talk to or see you all next week. <laughs> <laughs>